All right, if you want to find your place in Acts chapter 11, starting verse 19. And while you're uh, finding that, I want to just share a story with you. Uh, the college, the Bible college I went to, we had a thing a week in the spring every year that was called Week of Evangelism. And they blocked that week off, so there were no classes that met that week. And everybody, everybody on campus went on some sort of missions trip. Some, of, some people went across the oceans to other countries. Some people went across the country to places where there were needs. Um, if people had to be around for jobs or ministries or that kind of stuff, uh, they had things even locally. So people could, so, you know, from real extreme to, to um, local serving a few hours a day here and there. But we all took part in some kind of missions work. One year I went to Mexico and there was... There were two houses next door. They were neighbors. They were both part of the ministry we were working with. One family lived in a house. It was an American man who married a Mexican woman, and he had gone down there to do missions work, and they met, and they got married, and they had a family. And this house was a single American man who um, had gone down to work with the ministry as well. We stayed there, got a lot of time to spend with them, and I learned that... The husband, who was an American who had married a Mexican woman, um, his dad was there as well as part of the ministry. And I don't remember the year, number of years, but they'd been down there for a number of years. And we discovered that the grandfather, um, who probably wasn't that old, but I was in college, so he seemed old to me. Um, he was probably my age now. Um, <laughs> He, uh, he didn't know how to speak Spanish. And we learned that in all of the time that he was there, he had, he'd never made an effort to learn the language, which communicated to us that it wasn't important enough for him to engage in the culture and engage the people. And it's one thing if you try and try and try and you just can't get it, but from what we heard, it was that he didn't even make an effort. Uh, so that spoke volumes to us about his lack of compassion for the people that he was down there working with. Now, when we share the gospel with people, whether we go to other countries or we reach people that we work with here, we don't have to be experts at, we don't have to be you know, theologians that everybody in the world is looking to for our, for our take on a doctrine or some specific Greek or Hebrew word. We don't have to have multiple doctorates in order to share the gospel. But we do uh, need to be people who love people and love the lost and have compassion on them enough to do whatever we need to do to get the truth of the gospel to them. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 11 today, and we're going to look at the power of the gospel to reach people even when we might not be, even though when we are not the people that most people would look at and say, I want you to go and take the gospel to these people because you're the right person. We might not have great 
gifts in our own eyes. But the people who reached the people in Antioch were people that uh, we don't even know who they were. They were members of the church, and they were just engaging with the people day in and day out and sharing their faith. And through that, the power of the gospel swept through the city. So let's read in chapter 11. If you are able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? Starting in verse 19. So this is coming off of Peter's uh, account as he gives it to the people in Jerusalem after uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles in Cornelius' household. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so that took place in chapter um, 7 and 8. 7 was when Stephen was arrested, and then 8, the persecution broke out. Those who, bro- who were scattered because of that traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray. God, we look at this text today, and I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand more about the power of the gospel, the power that you displayed um, in Antioch as you took the message of the gospel and you completely changed lives inside out so that people went from living as enemies of you to living as one of your family. And it can change anyone, Lord. And I just pray that you help us to trust that as we share the gospel with those who are in need of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so... Before we get into the text, I want to just give you some background on Antioch because Antioch was quite a city. It was a pretty, it was a pretty special place, um, a great place actually for the gospel to flourish and take off. So let me give you just some basic information about Antioch. In your notes, there are a couple blanks of things that I want you to write in if you're following along with that, but I give you some space so, and I'll try to go slowly so you can make notes of this if you want. Antioch was founded in 300 BC by one of uh, he was by a man named Seleucus or Seleucus. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce his first name. Nicator, and he was a general of Alexander the Great. He founded the city. Um, he also 
founded a city, a port city, which was 15 miles to the west on the Mediterranean Sea. And he named that one after himself. That one's named Seleucia. So they're 15 miles apart, but the one's a port city. One is um, uh, quite a large city. In fact, Antioch's population at the time was estimated to be about 500,000 people. So that's roughly four and a half times larger than Peoria. So 500,000 people, that's a lot of people in ancient times. Um, Some of the character of the city itself, it was a commercial center. It was was, um, a place that was traveled through much, so it was a commercial center. It was a political capital. And the culture of the city was one of lax morality. They were not the most moral people on earth. Some of the demographics of Antioch um, had a large number of Jews because the guy that founded the city, uh, he put in place what was called equal citizenship, and that made it a place where people wanted to go and be a part of it. And so the Jews found a place where they could settle and live at peace. Um, It had a significant portion of the population that was Greek, obviously, because it was part of the Greek kingdom. It It was a place that Alexander the Great conquered, and then they established the city. Had a, um, so Greeks and Jews had Persians, a significant number of Persians, a significant number of people from India, and even a significant portion of people from China. So it was a really diverse um, location, culturally speaking. In 64 BC, it was then taken by Pompeii, and after that, then um, Romans were added to the mix as well. And so this was the makeup of the population when the gospel uh, came to Antioch and many turned to the Lord. So it was a very diverse, culturally, lots of different languages, practices, specifically religions that would have been brought from all over the world to this one place. Josephus, one last thing, Josephus, who was the um, Jewish historian who wrote uh, much on the Jewish uh, people, but also on Rome, because he lived in Rome, he called it the third city of the empire, the Roman Empire. He called it the third city of the empire, second or third only to Rome and Alexandria. So if, if that helps you understand, I hope that helps you understand a little bit more about what this city was. It was not, it was not a tiny place. It was not a place that was, um, you know, one culture farming community, or even one culture urban place, urban center. It was a diverse makeup of people from all over the world. And when that happens, that brings lots of different things about their particular cultures that you then engage and have to learn to work with and those things. So so that was the makeup. As we get into our second point, we're going to look at how there was a need for gospel power in Antioch. And I told you that they were a lax 
group of people, morally speaking. But there was just, there was a need for the power of the gospel. Look at verses 19 to 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So remember way back when the persecution took place and they were scattered, the gospel was still basically being proclaimed only to Jewish people who were just kind of around who'd been scattered around or maybe had already lived in uh, some other places. It was just being taken to Jews. Uh, Verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. That's another word for Greeks. Um, So basically Gentiles, people who are not Jews. So they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, that's an important phrase that we're going to touch on in just a minute. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So, the non-Jewish people in Antioch would have had no idea who is or what is this person, thing, Messiah, Christ, that, that would have been spoken as the gospel was taken there. So, they were speaking to Jewish people. They would have understood because they had a background. They, they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. But those who were not of Jewish background, and this is far enough removed geographically that they might not have been up on the news of what took place when Jesus was on the earth. They might not have known much about the Jewish culture. So to come to them with, with a message that there is that the Messiah has come or the Christ has come probably would not have made any sense to them. Most of the people, however, most of the people in the Greco-Roman world at the time were people who were concerned about religious matters. They were people who worshipped gods. They had, they had their own religions and their own gods that they worshipped. Um, they were concerned about the gods who had control over the things of this earth, specifically the things that would have affected their lives. And many of the people at the time were looking for a way to two things. They, everybody wanted happiness. They wanted an easy, happy life. And everybody was, not everybody, but most people were concerned about immortality. Is there a way that I can achieve immortality? That was a common thought of the time. So I don't know exactly what it was about the gospel that grabbed a hold of their hearts and caused this wave to just rush through the city. But I'm wondering if it had something to do with, as people were seeking out this, this happiness and immortality and, and trying to appease their gods, I wonder if it had something to do with the fact that when, when the gospel came to them, they were proclaiming to, to these people, they were proclaiming, it says that they proclaimed the Lord Jesus. The word kurios in Greek is the word that we translate Lord, and that's in verse 20. It says that they were proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Now, kurios could be used in lots of different ways. It could have been used for a master who had a slave. Um, you know, sometimes in like old English history, people called their masters, the master of the house, they called them lords. Um, It could have meant that, or it could have meant 
all the way to the other extreme of the spectrum, the ultimate Lord who is over all. And so as they're proclaiming the gospel, certainly they're proclaiming the basics of the gospel, that there's God who created everything, and he created man, and he created man to be in fellowship with him, but man broke that covenant and violated the covenant by sinning against him, and man no longer can fix his problem. He's now separated from God, but God provided a way through Jesus, through the Lord Jesus, who gave his life on the cross and was buried and then rose to life again on the third day. I don't know if this is it, but there's something powerful about the truth of the gospel that grabbed a hold of their hearts and swept through the city. And it, it doesn't stop there. It says in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was on them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. But um, further down in our text, as you go on, it, it tells us again that more people were being brought. Um, verse... Uh, Verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So there was, there was this initial wave, and then we get, after, after Barnabas is sent down there, we, we find out that more people are being added. So it is, it is this thing that is sweeping through the city. The power of the gospel is in two things. There, there are two things about the gospel that make it so powerful. The first thing is that it is the truth. It is the truth. And there is a deep desire that's woven into the human heart that, is, that desires truth. Generally speaking, the, now I'm, I'm not going to say this as a sweeping statement about every single human being, but generally speaking, people desire to know truth. They desire it, they long for it, they want it. Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So if we bear God's image, then we're, we are created to reflect him. And here is what we're reflecting in his character. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God's character is truth. Nothing false is in him. John 14, 6, Jesus said to, said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So there is nothing false in God. All truth comes out of God's character. All truth is born of him. So as we are image bearers, we reflect him. We are reflecting truth. So the gospel is powerful because it is, it is the truth. There's nothing in it that, is, that can be discounted as false. All things that are true in the world center on Christ. The other thing that makes the gospel so powerful is that it is truth that is accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's truth accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the truth and you've got God's Spirit that is working in the hearts and the minds of people to convict them. In fact, that's one of the Holy Spirit's jobs. John 16, 8 says, and when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So you've got all of, all that is true about life, this life and the, life, the eternal life that we will serve in one place or another um, after we pass, 
all of truth about life, and it's accompanied by the work of God's Spirit. And when those two things get into your heart, the gospel overpowers any kind of rejection that, that you can have if you are a person who is really seeking out truth. So that's what took place in Antioch. The people were people who longed for, they longed for what was real. And usually religious people are religious because they think it's real, they think it's true, and they think this is what they need to be doing. And they were seeking it out. They were just seeking it out in the wrong place. But the people who were scattered brought the gospel to Antioch. And I think it's important for us to note, too, that the people who brought the gospel, I mentioned earlier, Luke doesn't even, give, doesn't even name them. So it's not, church, it's not the, the apostles, it's not other church leaders that have been highlighted in Acts. It's, it's everyday people who believe in Christ, like you and me, believe in Christ, have changed, their life has been changed by the Holy Spirit coming in and, and uh, doing the work of regeneration in us. And they're going about their daily lives. They're going to work. They're engaging in their community. They're being a part of things in their community. They're meeting people. They're making friends. And as they are going about life, the thing that is the most important thing in their life comes to conversation. They weren't people who were professionals. They weren't people who had advanced degrees. They were just people who loved Jesus and shared that, and God took that testimony and the power of that testimony, because it's the test, it's, they're testifying to the truth of the gospel, God used his Holy Spirit to work, and through people just like you and me, caused a major city to, to just be swept over with the gospel. So there was a need for gospel power in Antioch, uh, point number three in your notes is there is a needful gospel, need for gospel power in America today. There's a desperate need for the gospel power to sweep through our country today. Um, America is a melting pot, so it looked, I, I imagine Antioch at the time looked very much like our culture does today. Um, you know, God commanded his people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but he has made it easy for us. He's brought the ends of the earth to us. And you don't have to go very far to engage cultures from all over the world, even in central Illinois. Like, we don't have to go very far. It's not, not like you have to be in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles to really get that mixture of cultures. Caterpillar is in Peoria and in other locations around the area. There are hospitals in Peoria, Pekin, Eureka, Bloomington. There are uni- colleges and universities in the area. And so you don't have to go very far to encounter people from the ends of the earth who have come here to work at those places or to study at those places. And those are just like, those are just ones that I thought of off the top of my head that would be major employers or would have a lot of people engaged there. There are lots of other things that people from all over the world have come here. And so we could go, we could just travel a few miles and encounter. In fact, there's a church in Peoria, if it's still, if it's still in existence. It was when I was in college. 
there was a significant enough of a population in Peoria of Korean people that there was a, an all-Korean church in Peoria. And I went there for um, uh, one of my classes. We were, it was a cross-cultural class, and we, I and a couple friends went there. And it, they, speak every, they can speak English because they live here, and they engage with people who are English-speaking people. But in the church, it's all Korean-speaking. I had to wear a headset and listen to a translator. But it was so cool to be a part of their culture that they've brought here. God has, God has made America a melting pot where the cultures and the ends of the earth have come here. When that happens, though, they bring lots of stuff from their culture. They bring not just cultural practices and their language, but they bring their religious practices and they bring philosophical thoughts that sometimes, you know, Americans and people in the West, we think very linear and fact based. We want any kind of uh, account that we're giving of something. We want all the details and we want everything to be able to be verified with sources. You go to the Middle East and that's a different, they, they think differently than we do. And so when people from other countries come here, they bring different mindsets and different philosophical thoughts. So that has, that's a great thing because they're here. But it creates some hurdles that we've had to deal with as the church in America. And some of those have progressed and gotten turned into other things that have become other types of hurdles. So we're going to look at four hurdles this morning that we deal with in our culture as we are preparing to share the gospel with people. Uh, the first one is, um, and these are wrong practices of the culture. These are just mi misunderstandings where we need to help people understand. The first one is syncretism. Syncretism is the mixing of different religious beliefs. So what we see in America is there's a lot of mixing Jesus with other religions. So people have brought other understandings from their parts of the world to America. Uh, with the internet, we have all kinds of knowledge now that we can research um, other cultures and learn that kind of stuff. And as, as people become more knowledgeable of those things and educated in those things they they see jesus that maybe they grew up with and they see this and you know this this has some things in this religious belief that sound kind of good and so i'll just mix the two and so syncretism is a problem major problem in our culture today and it actually has begun to creep into some churches um so it's pretty dangerous um another hurdle that we have is pluralism. Pluralism is believing that there are many ways to heaven, and Jesus just happens to be one of those ways to salvation among many. And so as people have become uh, more aware of other religious beliefs, and there are things that seem good, and they look at those things and they say, how can that be wrong? They come to the conclusion, well, Maybe, maybe Jesus is just one way, and that's the way that I grew up with, but they grew up with that way in their country, so um, it must just be that they all, all roads lead to heaven, and people, people just believe the one that they grew up with. So pluralism is a problem, because the gospel is pretty clear, uh, as I read in John 14, 6. I am the, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And if, what I didn't read was the next thing he said was, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
He doesn't say, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can believe in other things as well as long as you believe in me. He says, no one comes to the Father except me alone. So pluralism is a problem. Another thing that has, um, that has become, especially in my lifetime, become more predominant is atheism. Atheism is the belief that there's no God. I didn't put on here agnosticism, but agnosticism and atheism um, are very closely related in this sense. An agnostic believes that there may be a God, but if there is, we don't know that for sure, we can't know that for sure, and we certainly can't know him if there is. So what you will find is a lot of atheists are... um, when you begin to press them about their beliefs, a lot of them will, in, in conversation, move from atheism to agnosticism pretty quickly. Um, so they're pretty closely related, but atheism is a problem, in, especially in our time period today, because of the most recent philosophical thought that has dominated the world today, and it's postmodernism, where, they belie- where the belief is that there's no truth, um, you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's great for you. Just don't push it on me. Um, and that's led to um, believing in science as being the ultimate end. And what, what's actually interesting is that science always affirms God. But atheists who are not interested in the truth, they're really interested in just their own philosophical belief, will will ignore the things that are pointing to God in science. And so they, they, say, they say, I only believe in science, and I'm going to ignore the things that science does that points, that points to God, and I'm going to try to find anything I can to hold on to this belief because they don't want there to be a God. That's a major problem, and that's a hard one because if someone isn't, if someone isn't willing to listen to you, then they're probably not going, it's, it's going to absolutely take the Holy Spirit really coming down and convicting them hard. That's a major problem, that, a hurdle that we deal with. Uh, the last one I put on here is indifference, and this one is different, difficult as well, because a lot of people have gotten to the point where they just don't care. They've witnessed These people believe this thing. These people believe this thing. They believe this thing. Nobody, nobody can come up with a good answer that's that is real. They all fight with each other. So I just don't care anymore. Like I'm just done with religion. And so, indifference is a difficult thing to overcome because when you're indifferent, there's very little that you can do that makes them care at all. But it's a major hurdle that we have to overcome in our culture with the gospel. So with all of that, what do we do? What do we learn from Antioch in our text today that applies to us as we are trying to engage a culture that has a lot of this belief? Well, I'm going to share five things with you as we, as we wrap up. First thing, pray for those who have wrong belief. I mentioned last week or the week before, prayer is our power source. It's, it's the one thing that we have that can 
play a role in God changing somebody's heart. So pray for those who have wrong belief. Uh, there's a call in Scripture on our lives to pray for the nations. Romans 10.1, Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 and verses 3 and 4. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Pick up in verse 3. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God, God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for the lost. We as people who are saved, who have experienced salvation in Christ, we as people who are image bearers reflecting God's heart need to be people who care enough about the nations that we're in prayer for them constantly. Care enough for non-believers that we know that we're in prayer for them constantly. Now, I'm not so naive to believe that all of us are burdened deeply in our spirit for people we know that aren't saved. Um, we all have we all have parts of us that get focused on ourselves that don't get that aren't concerned the way that we should be for people who don't know Christ. I would just say, and I and I'm with you in, at times with that too. So I'm not I'm not putting that on you. I'm saying all of us. I would just say, if you recognize that your heart is not hurting for the loss. Ask God to make your heart hurt for the lost because it's his heart and he wants your heart to line up with his. And so if you, if you recognize that and you ask him, he will give you a burden that just hurts for people who don't know Christ. Okay, so pray for those who have wrong belief. Number two, share the truth of the gospel. So pray for them and share them. Give them the information. The believers in Antioch shared the gospel. They said, they said, here's what, here's what has changed my life. And here, here's a story about this man named Jesus. This is, this is what has given me hope in the midst of a hard life of suffering, of trials, um, of struggling with sin. So give them the information. A lot of people don't believe a right view of Christ. They don't have a right understanding of who Jesus is because they haven't been educated they haven't read the scriptures. They haven't been told by somebody. They haven't had someone be compassionate enough for them to share the truth with them. And so they're left to gathering what they hear from other people, from the media, from movies, from songs. They, they take all the stuff that they hear that are wrong Im images of who Jesus is, and that pu they put that all together in their head, and that's who Jesus is. And it could be so far off the truth they need someone to come in and say, let me, let me give you a, a right image of who he is. If, you're, if you don't believe in him, fine, but let me at least make sure that you understand who you're either serving or who you're rejecting. So share the gospel. Give them that. Your job is not to change their hearts. The great commission that Jesus gave us, he said, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. You are to be my witnesses. Okay, none of that speaks of your job 
being somebody who changes their hearts to, to convert to a life lived for Christ. Your job and my job is to share the truth. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to change hearts and minds. Share the truth and let the Holy Spirit take the truth and work in their heart and mind and change their life. So uh, pray for those who have wrong beliefs. Share the truth of the gospel. Number three, encourage those with wrong understandings to read the gospels in the scriptures. If you're in a conversation with somebody and you're trying to share Christ with them and you, you come to the understanding that they've never even read the gospels, give them a Bible and say, listen, don't take my word for it. Read this. Figure out who Jesus is from God's very words. Encourage them to read the, the Gospels if they haven't. Um, number four, continue to, this is for you, continue to pursue Christ, to study, and to engage non-believers. Don't tire of sharing the Gospel. Don't tire of continuing to be there for the person that you've been trying to help them uh, understand who Christ is. Continue to pursue Christ yourself. Continue to study God's word yourself so that you are well equipped and continue without tiring to engage non-believers with the gospel. And then the last thing is, after all of that is said and done, trust God. Trust God. I've shared with you before, I've had encounters at the hospital where I've had an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody or get into a discussion about Christ with somebody and I came to a fork in the road and I went this way and afterward I thought, I wish I'd gone this way with that conversation instead. And I'd kick myself and beat myself up like for the next 12 hours of my day. And I had to come to the conclusion one day, I just, God just weighed heavy on my heart and just said, Stop trying to be the one who does this and trust me to take what you've given them and change their heart. And so I had to, that was hard for me, but I had to get to the point where I, when I walked away and I thought I could have given him this information or given her this information, uh, I had to say, okay, God, here's, here, here's where I stopped. Take it from there and continue to work in their hearts. And so when you do all those things at the end, trust God to change their hearts. So here's what we do in our culture. Pray for those who have wrong belief. Never cease to pray for them. Share the truth of the gospel. Give them the information that they need so the Holy Spirit can take that truth and change them. Encourage those who have wrong understandings to read the gospels for themselves so that they have a, so that you can correct their misunderstandings with the gospels. Continue yourself to pursue Christ, to study, and to engage non-believers. Don't get tired of that. Just continue to push on because the more you engage them, the more they're exposed to the gospel. And in the end, trust God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your, your word and, and the gospel message that does change lives. Give us a passion, a burden, for the lost. <clears throat> Help us, God, to give them the truth 
and then to trust you to work in their lives for their salvation and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.